This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... The United States sees African countries as genuine partners and wants to build relationships based on mutual respect. That's White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre on the U.S. trying to build meaningful relations in areas such as business, health, peace and security in Africa. Details coming up. Also, Pope Francis has criticized laws that criminalize homosexuality as unjust. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed is in Sudan, and African leaders meet to address food security. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story. Today is the third and last day of U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's South Africa visit. She started out in Senegal and then Zambia before she arrived in South Africa. Journalist Tuso Kumalo has been monitoring the U.S. official from Johannesburg and is standing by live to brief us. Welcome to African News Tonight, uh, Tuso. Welcome. Thank you. So what is the secretary's agenda today? What was it? It was quite a packed day for of Secretary Ellen today because she had a string of meetings. She kicked off her day early morning at LF8 when she met uh, South African Finance Minister uh, Ino Kodongwana, where there the two discussed issues, amongst other things, uh, climate change financing, issues like sovereign debt resolution for Africa, uh, anti-money laundering strategies, and as well as looking at South Africa's economic outlook, which is which does not look uh, very good currently. After that meeting, she went into a lunch with uh, uh, U.S. Ambassador to South Africa, Ruben Brigett, where the business people also joined in that lunch and discussions around there were the ease of doing business uh, in both countries, as well as the opportunities uh, that uh, businesses in U.S. Uh, can have here in South Africa in, in, in partnership with companies that are here in South Africa. After that, then, she had to head to Ford Motor Company. Uh, this American company here employs about 4,000 people, and this one of those companies that uh, is being put as an example of what uh, investment can do uh, to South Africa in terms of alleviation, alleviating poverty and unemployment and all other uh, things in terms of building the economy. Uh, then the last one for, for the day was uh, the meeting that she had with the Reserve Bank Governor, Lesicha uh, Hanyaho, where, of course, they discussed issues around financial intelligence and, of course, how the two banks uh, can also uh, be used to, to empower citizens and, of course, facilitate businesses between the two countries. The country has been embroiled in an electricity crisis which scheduling rolling blackouts hitting businesses and households for up to 10 hours. Uh, that topic never came up? That issue has been discussed. What happened yesterday at the end of the day is that she went into a door meeting with uh, President Sira Yamaposa, which the media had no privy to what was discussed. But today, in one of the briefings, uh, Ambassador uh, Ruben Brigade managed to talk to the media, and she say, he said uh, uh, in that meeting with Sira Yamaposa, uh, the, the Secretary Ellen discussed at length 
this energy crisis that's happening in South Africa and what uh, can be done. It was also on the plate with the uh, finance minister uh, Ino Kodongwana. Yesterday, she also met uh, uh, the energy minister, uh, Mantashe, where they discussed that issue. So that issue is being discussed across the board because it is currently affecting South Africa's economy. And, of course, America bringing in, uh, we know that there were funds that uh, were presented to South Africa so that uh, the country can move into renewable energy. And, of course, that was the topic as to how uh, that can 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 be a solution to the current crisis that the country is failing, where people are going for hours uh, without electricity. Yes. Uh, also, you said renewable energy. Africa's most developed economy, South Africa, relies on coal to generate about 80% of its electricity. So is there plans to reduce that by uh, a certain time? Currently, the government is moving towards that. There was a stumbling block, uh, the legislation, the policies around uh, introduction of renewable energy were the standing blocks for independent um, energy producers. But so far, the government has removed those and allowed companies to produce their own, own renewable energies. It has allowed also uh, individual uh, producers uh, that want to, to, to rely on solar, to rely on wind, to come forward and, and do that. So it is expected that uh, within a short term, experts are saying between now and up to two to three years, we could start seeing some of the results of that, people coming into the grid. But currently, uh, the problem in South Africa is that energy is needed it's needed now, not two years down the line. So that's why the country now still relies on coal and still also we see it's trying to maintain the coal stations because currently there are no renewable energy stations that can sustain the grid as much as uh, the economy needs. To Sokomalo from Johannesburg, thank you for your input. Thank you. Top Chinese, Russian, and American officials are scrambling this month to visit nations in Africa, the world's fastest-growing continent. Several U.S. officials are in Africa walking a fine line between their desire for Africa's support against Russian aggression and Chinese ambitions and their promise to do work that benefits the continent. VOA's Anita Powell reports from Washington. Top Chinese, Russian, and American officials have in past weeks flocked to Africa in what they say is a quest to build deeper partnerships. President Joe Biden said last month that he, too, plans to visit this year. Washington says this is not about countering Russian and Chinese ambitions, but about building meaningful relationships in areas such as business, health, and peace and security. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Our partnership in Africa is not about, uh, uh, about other nations. Uh, our partnership there. It's uh, as demonstrated by our commitments at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. The United States sees African countries as genuine partners and wants to build relationship based on mutual respect. But the continent's top diplomat says Africa, which was brutally colonized by European powers for centuries, is no one's pawn. And he added, China understands that. Musafaki Mohammed is chairman of the African Union Commission. Africa refuses to be seen as an arena for influence struggles. We are open to cooperation and partnership with everyone, as long as they respect our principles, our priorities, and our interests. The partnership we have with China is built on these principles. But as the most senior visiting U.S. official said recently, these great power rivals are keenly aware of one another's activities, especially as China and Russia flex their muscles globally. Janet Yellen is U.S. Treasury Secretary. Many African countries 
are now plagued by high and unsustainable debt, and that's undeniably a problem, and much of it is related to Chinese Chinese investments um, in Africa. So I think that's simply a factual statement. But um, this is not for us. This is not a competition with China. We want to deepen our engagement with Africa. Analysts say these two goals, real partnership but also great power competition, are not mutually exclusive. Cameron Hudson is a consultant on Africa with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. All of these things can be true at the same time. However, we're not acknowledging that truth. We are acknowledging only one truth, uh, which is that we want to see Africa develop. And I think it's just more complicated than that. Analysts estimate that China spent more than $1 trillion on its global Belt and Road Initiative, which builds infrastructure in the developing world. China maintains a strict stance of non-interference in other countries' internal affairs. During his first trip on the job, China's new foreign minister rejected the notion of Africa as an ideological battleground, as it often was during the Cold War. Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Yang. No country, no people have the right to force African countries and its people to take sides. Africa should be a platform for international cooperation, not an arena for competition between major countries. The next top American official to visit in coming days will be Biden's ambassador to the United Nations, who previously oversaw the continent at the State Department. And then, presumably, Biden goes. The White House this week said there were no concrete plans to announce yet. Biden has framed the conflict in Ukraine as a struggle between democracies and autocracies, with Africa showing clear signs of democratic backsliding. Hudson wonders whether Biden will keep those ideals in front on African soil. Or will he uh, kind of ignore that or put that on a back burner so that he can build relationships that might um, advantage Washington uh, at the U.N. Or, or down the road politically? So will the president pack principle or practicality or both when he makes the trip? Anita Powell, VOA News, Washington. Pope Francis has criticized laws that criminalize homosexuality as unjust and said God loves all his children just as they are. In an interview Tuesday with the Associated Press, Francis also said that homosexuality is a human condition. Speaking in Spanish, the Pope says God loves us as we are and for the strength that each one of us has to fight for our dignity. He goes to say it's not a crime, although he said it's a sin. But he says let's make the distinction first between sin and crime. And he notes the Church considers it a sin to lack charity with one another, but that is not a crime. The comments come days before the Pope leaves for a visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. Many countries in Africa consider same-sex relationships to be criminal acts that can lead to prison. He acknowledged that Catholic bishops in some parts of the world still support laws that criminalize homosexuality or discriminate against the LGBTQ community. He attributed such attitudes to cultural backgrounds and said bishops in particular need to undergo a process of change to recognize the dignity of everyone. And he said the church can help change such laws. Francis says, yes, yes, it must do this. He says, 
Bishops are part of the cultures in nations, but they have a process of change. He said bishops in countries where homosexuality is illegal are open to helping not only with this but also with other problems. And he stresses there is a need for tenderness as God has with each one of us. The Pope flies to Kinshasa next Tuesday and then goes to Juba on Friday. VOA Africa will be covering his trip on our radio and television programs and on voaafrica.com. As you just heard, Pope Francis will visit the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan next week. Journalist Ruben Chama spoke with Father John Joseph Imbekoizu, the coordinator of the Sudan Catholic Bishops' Conference, who is familiar with preparations for the papal visit. He began by explaining the significance of the Pope's visit to the world's youngest nation. This visit is very significant for us, the South Sudanese and the region, uh, because we can see in the tour that the Holy Father is doing, first of all, is coming to DRC, a country which we know is experiencing also political turmoil, a country which is suffering from so many uh, problems, economical wars, insecurity, displacements, and so on. So coming to South Sudan is also showing that there is much suffering in this country for years, even after its independence. So its significance for us is really based on the fact of peace. Uh, there is a lack of peace and security for the people in this country. The Holy Father and uh, the other two church leaders, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Presbyterian uh, based in Scotland, their appeal for peace has been very significant and uh, this was uh, demonstrated when the South Sudanese uh, president and his vice Vice Presidents visited Rome for retreat. The Pope appealed openly for peace among themselves and peace for the people of this country. So we know that the visit of the Holy Father will help to bring stability, will be able to bring security because this visit is uh, bringing awareness to, to the region and also the international community to, to extend their hands for peace and security in the country. Briefly, tell us how the Pope's program will look like while in South Sudan. The program for the visit of the Holy Father is uh, brief, but uh, very significant for us. Um, on the first day, on Saturday, he will arrive around 3 o'clock. He will be received at Juba International Airport. And after a while, then he will go to, to the presidential palace, where he will meet the president, the vice first president, and then... The the representatives of the civil societies, the diplomatic corps, and the other representatives. The following day, the Holy Father himself will, will talk to the bishops and the priests, religious and the seminarians at the St. Teresa Cathedral in Juba in the morning hours at 9. And then in the afternoon, he will have a meeting in communion with the other church leaders accompanying him with uh, internal displaced persons and they will share their experiences of their lives in the RDP camps and then the Holy Father, the Archbishop Canterbury and the moderator, they will give a message of encouragement to them and to us all who are uh, at, at this situation uh, now in our country. 
Uh, this will be followed uh, at six o'clock with ecumenical prayers, uh, which will be held um, at Dr. John Garang Mausoleum, where everybody is expected to be a prayer that unites all of us Christians and even the other groups, religious groups like Muslims, they will be they will be present. The following day on Sunday, the Holy Father will preside over the Holy Mass, uh, which is culminating the easy visit to the country. He will celebrate the Holy Mass for us in the morning hours. What message would you like Pope Francis to bring to the people of South Sudan? Uh, the message which we expect from the Holy Father is still to put emphasis on the need for peace in this country, in South Sudan, and to ask the leaders how far they have gone with the peace process and uh, to, to also tell the, the, the wider community of South Sudan, Sudanese, that we are to be elements uh, of peace, we are supposed to embrace peace. That was Father John Joseph Mbikoyuzu, the coordinator of the Sudan Catholic Bishops Conference, speaking from the South Sudanese capital Juba with VOA's Ruben Chama. African heads of state and development partners are looking to improve the continent's food security at a summit this week in Senegal. Climate change, soaring inflation, and the spillover effects of Russia's war on Ukraine have worsened food security in Africa. Anika Hamashlag reports from Dakar, Senegal. The consensus throughout the three-day event has been that it's time for Africa to end its dependence on food imports. The continent has enough arable land to feed 9 billion people, yet it spends 75 billion each year to import more than 100 million metric tons of food, according to the African Development Bank. Akinwumi Adesina is the president of the bank, which organized the summit. Only a secure continent can develop with pride, he said, for there is no pride in begging for food. The timing is right, and the moment is now, he says. My heart and my determination is that Africa feeds itself. Around 282 million Africans suffer from hunger, according to UN figures, and persistent drought has pushed some areas, such as the Horn of Africa and Madagascar, to the brink of famine. Recent disruptions in the global food supply chain have also aggravated the issue. Africa typically imports 30 million metric tons of food from the now warring nations of Russia and Ukraine, and energy, fertilizer, and food prices have increased by 40 to 300 percent, according to the African Development Bank. Muhammadu Buhari is the president of Nigeria. In order to become self-sufficient, he said, African nations must increase funding toward agricultural initiatives and rural infrastructure. To succeed, there is no doubt that we need to subsidize farmers, he says. We must reduce the rate of rural to urban migration through the development of rural areas. He says we must invest heavily in irrigation to help address the increasing frequency of droughts. Due to high lending risks, less than 3% of total financing from African commercial banks goes towards funding agriculture, Buhari said, and central banks must pick up the slack. At a CEO roundtable Thursday, Ahmed Abdelatif, president of Sudanese business conglomerate CTC Group, said risks can be minimized with agri-insurance. If you're one of the unlucky... He says, if you're one of the unlucky half a percent where the rain does not come, it wipes you out totally and you're in very big trouble. So agri-insurance would be a big enabler. Various speakers pointed to success stories on the continent. Ethiopia increased production of a heat-resistant wheat variety from 5,000 to 800,000 hectares over a four-year period and is now on its way to becoming a wheat exporter. The adoption of a drought-resistant maize variety in Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda has more than doubled outputs. In response to the conflict in Ukraine, Zimbabwe began producing its own fertilizer and wheat. 
Zimbabwean President Emerson Nangagwa said the country expects to produce enough wheat to begin exports next year. He says a country must be ruled by the people of that country, a country must be developed by the people of that country, and a country must eat what it sows. That is village wisdom, he says. The conference will continue through Friday. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Since Kenya began its voluntary refugee repatriation program in 2017, more than 85,000 Somali refugees have resettled back home. But amid a record drought in the Horn of Africa, thousands of them have returned to Kenya's Dadaaba refugee camp to seek relief. As Juma Majanga reports from Dadaab, those who have returned are finding themselves locked out of aid programs because Kenya has banned registration of new refugees. Alima Omar is making her way to the World Food Program Aid Distribution Center in the Dadaab refugee camp. As other refugees key in information to get monthly food donations, Halima, like many unregistered returning refugees, has been locked out of aid programs. John Mwangi, humanitarian and refugee program manager, at Care International in the Dab explains. The fact that they are not recognized by the, the government, they are not entitled to, for example, to be issued with plots uh, or even other basic services. According to humanitarian agencies, returning refugees has been a cyclical issue. However, this time they cannot register again as refugees because Kenya has banned the registration of new refugees in the Dab camp for security reasons. Guy Avonio is the head of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in the Dab. Those who repatriated around 2017 mostly came around 2012 during the big drought of about 10 years ago. So that means there are all those cycles of drought, they are recurrent and then they, they happen over every 9 to 10 years. Usually they come and stay for a period of three, four years until they are able to go back when uh, the situation gets, gets better. Halima, a 47-year-old widow and mother of seven, says she returned to Somalia six years ago and has come back to the refugee camp to escape drought and hunger back home. Despite the government's policy change on refugees, aid agencies have helped unregistered refugees like Halima get food aid. They are issued with tokens that they cash in for food. Halima Omar is a returning Somali refugee. She says the truth is life has been hard in the makeshift camp. She has to do manual work in the camp, like washing clothes for people to be able to fend for her children. Today, Halima is relieved after getting food aid. Officials in Kenya say many of the nearly 100,000 Somali refugees fleeing drought and returning here are refugees who repatriated earlier. And as the numbers keep rising, aid groups say their services could be stretched further. Here again is Guy Avonio. Let's hope that uh, the hardships that, that are leading to all these population movements reduce and let's hope that this year the rains are going to be better let's hope that this year people are not going to be crossing the border because of conflict on the other side so 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 that we can focus 
and, and provide support to those who are already here in better conditions until they are able to go back to their countries. Kenya's voluntary refugee repatriation program was meant to provide a durable solution to the refugee situation and help ease congestion in the camps. But with the high rate of returning repatriates, experts say players in the sector will have to rethink the strategy. Juma Majanga for VOA News, Dadaab Refugee Camp, Kenya. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.